Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner, Episode 6, How Sweet It Is. Hello everyone and thanks for joining me. My name is Kevin England and if you're ready to get things going, then let's set the stage for what's to come. In this episode, Honey Judging, Will You Have What It Takes? We'll bring you some insight on what it takes to get you that blue ribbon at this summer's county fair. Are you controlling your Varroa mite problem? Depending on your location, it could be time to get ramped up for Varroa Combat. I'll touch on some recent conversations concerning the premise that a best offense is a good defense. Lions and tigers and bears, oh my! Well, just bears, we have some new neighbors and it's time to consider our options. A beekeeping basic? Do you know how to light a smoker? Term of the week, festooning. Like that word? Festooning. We'll tell you what that's all about later. That's good enough to prime the pump? Let's get things going with our normal first feature out of the gate, our local hive report. With our fickle queen problem out of the way, things are at a more conventional state for our local hives. For those joining us for the first time, we have two hives that we just started this spring. I took a peek in hive number one this week and it is loaded with bees. Things look fantastic and the two deeps that we currently have on the bottom board are just about filled out. We are feeding the bees one-to-one -one ratio sugar water, so they build out the few remaining frames of foundation. This is probably the final week that we'll have to feed this hive, as it seems we could throw a super on top and start on our path to some honey to harvest a little bit later in the fall. We use medium supers for honey harvesting. These boxes are a little shorter than the traditional deep, and that makes it a little easier to move them around, especially when they're loaded with honey. If they fill one out, we throw another one on there. On to hive number two, well the news is also good. The bees are building out some new comb and actively foraging. The numbers in this box are naturally lower as it took two tries to get a queen in operation for this hive and as of last week she's in there plugging away. I popped in the hive last Saturday to see how things were going. The third frame in from the end in the bottom box was just loaded with cap brood so we're expecting this hive to take off with bee numbers in the next week or so. I said bottom box, yes I have two deeps on this one. The top deep has frames from a previous hive that has honey on it and they're just about cleaned out. Eventually this will be open comb for them to store real nectar and pollen in. One of the traits of the Carniolian Queen we purchased this go-round is a quick, quick ramp-up if conditions are favorable, and we're hoping that we can get this hive in shape for some late summer honey supers. Obviously, the first priority, though, is getting it in shape so that it can overwinter. You know, as I think about it, one observation for central New Jersey lately is we haven't had any rain. The springtime this year has just been ideal rain about once a week and the growth this season of trees, grass, plants and just about any vegetation is an 11 out of a scale of 1 to 10. What a difference a year makes as last year the spring was so wet. As green as everything looks we could use some rain here. Our natural water sources for the bees have all but dried up. We have a seasonal creek nearby. Well it's more like a swell that's often as wet as any surrounding fields behind us drain through the low area on one side of our property but we also have a bona fide creek out in front of our property and it too has stopped running and there's nothing but a puddle at its deepest part. What to do about the lack of water? We have a few bird baths on our property and also a few small decorative ponds. We also have an above ground pool. I filled the bird baths this past week and the decorative ponds. We see bee visitors in the pool just about every time we're in there. And I have to tell a side story. If you've listened to the previous episodes of the podcast, you know I do this every once in a while. Whenever we're swimming and we rescue a bee, we'll scoop it out with the strainer and put it on the deck. We've noted an interesting and amusing behavior. When you take a bee out and put them on the deck, on the far side of the pool from where the hives are located, They'll walk around on the deck to dry off some, then turn towards the hive 
and walk across the board and fall right back into the pool. Fish them out and put them back, they'll do the same thing. If you swim them across the pool and put them on the other side, they'll dry off some and head in the direction of the hive, most times walking off the deck to the bushes on the other side. No lesson here, just a casual observation that we've repeated time and time again. Go figure. Back to the water source conversation, we know that our bees have some sources of water. Do you? You should be diligent about ensuring a water source for your bees. It is a critical need. I've been speaking of our local hive report. Let me say that for this week, we're going to stretch the local hive report we bring to you. Our neighbors that are two fields over from us keep bees on their farm, and I happen to work with the homeowner literally on the same project at work. We chat on occasion about our beekeeping adventures, and he asked me if I'd be interesting in, interested in coming over and checking out their hive. I stopped over to Gun Creek Farm this morning and met with his wife, as she's the one who tends to the bees. The hive was an established hive from last year, and it had two deep hives and two medium honey supers on board. The box was also adorned with what appeared to be a B-Max foam hive top feeder. The hive looked incredible. We started with the top medium super. It had 10 frames of foundation but no comb. The second medium super had foundation frames also, but the good news is that the bees were working on building out comb in there. Delving into the top deep box, all 10 frames were just loaded with bees. We pulled the first frame and it was covered with bees. Not only was it covered with bees, it was just jam-packed with honey. That's an impressive group of bees if they've built out the top box to the outside frame. The second frame looked equally impressive. The frame was completely loaded with capped brood. The typical pattern from the bottom edge of the frame to almost the top edge in a big arc covered with brood, the top right and left corners covered with cap honey. Gentle bees, not concerned whatsoever with us being there. We pulled one additional frame and looked down into the bottom deep and you could see that it was loaded with bees. Now it was 9.30 in the morning and perhaps everyone was still home as it didn't look like the foragers were out but the box looked fantastic. After looking things over, I suggested that we pull the top medium off the hive, which was only foundation, and advise them to keep feeding the bees until the comb was built out on the lower medium super. Once that is in place, they can stop feeding the bees and let the bees pack some honey in there for them. The key thing is managing the timing. They're going to perform an apigard treatment sometime later this summer, and they don't want to do that with a honey super on there. The bees will need time to populate the honey super, but one has to consider that you need to do the apigard treatments when the temperature is high enough to be effective. There are two treatments, and to cut to the chase, they're probably going to want to get that finished up by, say, mid-September. The way things are rolling now, they shouldn't be in jeopardy time-wise. It seems that things are right in line for them. Our boxes look good. Their boxes look good. Let me just bask a moment in the kumbaya moment ah how sweet it is let's take a quick break we'll be back with our first segment of the episode honey judging criteria coming at you next You know what would be nice right now? A nice hot bowl of soup. Wouldn't that be nice? My cousin used to tell a story of how they'd have soup every afternoon after school and how his mother, my aunt, would say, just like I did, a nice hot bowl of soup and try to make it sound like it was the best thing on earth. Why share this story with you? Sometimes we feel that way about our honey. I remember our first batch of honey ever produced. A crystal clear amber hue that shined like liquid gold. 
creamy smooth with a buttery finish each taste was an explosion of sunshine the perfect touch of a citrusy lemon floral bouquet with a sweetness that transcended you to another place with every cherished mouthful <laughs> well you know what truth be told it was that zen type of good now subsequent batches were clearly scrumptious too but that first one it was one to fall in love with thinking back i would have loved to have the opportunity to enter that batch into a contest like wine some say that honey is something that is coveted for its diversity and excellence thing is i wouldn't know the first thing about entering a jar into a honey contest well at least that is until this past weekend a bonus session of our Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association was hosted this past weekend, and Bob Hughes, yes, that same Bob Hughes that I mentioned in the previous episode, was the guest speaker. Bob is not only active as a bee inspector for the state, he is also sought for his expertise in judging honey. A full half of this bonus meeting was dedicated to the topic of judging honey, and I thought I would bring the highlights of the things that one should or shouldn't do to prepare for judging. Okay, what we do is we turn around, we take a toothpick. This is a two-step deal. Turn around, dip it in here. Okay, put a couple of drops across here like this. Sample it. Tastes good. And I can look in here. And there's a dividing line. There's a, there's a dark blue, and then it goes white, okay? And according to this, this hits right on 18 minus, uh, right, an 18, okay, minus 5, or minus 3, rather, okay? So there you are. So it would be, it would actually would be a 17-7. 17-7, Okay. Bob Hughes took a drop or two of honey and placed it into a refractometer in that opening clip. The instrument tells how much moisture is in the honey. Measuring the moisture is just one of the many aspects of honey judging. Beyond measuring moisture content, Bob gave tips about preparing jars, the physical inspection of honey, and other recommendations. I'll present some notes in the order that Bob covered them that day, and then point you to an audio recording of the entire conversation that has the back and forth with the audience and attendance, and the questions and commentary that ensued during the session. Honey moisture is an important aspect of judging. Moisture content controls the viscosity of the honey, and whether it can affect the taste and longevity of the honey. When honey is measured for moisture, it should fall between a certain range. Honey is hygroscopic. It means it will absorb moisture. Honey with too much moisture could potentially mean fermentation. Uh, you would notice a sort of sour taste if you've ever had a spoonful of honey that is fermented. For judging purposes, they're looking for honey in a range of 15.5 to 18.6 moisture, and a refractometer is how they grade the honey moisture content. There was some commentary about what happens when the moisture is too low. The group speculated that honey that is too dry could crystallize, but there was really no consensus. I did some searches and couldn't seem to find a reason why honey that's below a reading of 15.5 is bad. Maybe one of the listeners knows the answer to this. If you do, send me a note at kevin at bkcorner.org. I'd be happy to share whatever the answers are that I receive about this. In that clip, you heard Bob talking about putting some drops into the device and then looking at the results. The refractometer looks like a small tube. It has a small ocular cuff to put your eye on, and when you look in, you see a half-white, half-blue circle at the other end of the tube. The colors are split horizontally and form a horizontal line that can be measured on a metered grid that runs from the top of the view to the bottom. Marked with grades of moisture indicators, the horizontal dividing line will hopefully fall under the 18.6 mark on the line and above the 15.5 mark. Bob measured four or five jars present that afternoon and all of them were within the boundaries. 
One was 18.5%, which is pretty close, but would have passed muster. If the total was too high, then the sample could be disqualified, or at minimum would have had points taken off. How much honey in the jar was the next topic of conversation. It should be filled to a proper level, not too much or not too little, and art all jars should be even. I don't recall Bob indicating what the proper fill was, but I found a reference on the internet that says that the honey should be just high enough in the jar that there is no airline between the honey and the jar lid when viewed from the side of the jar. Container appearance, Bob spent quite a bit of time here. When jars are presented for judging, it appears that they have to be perfect and judges need to find anything that distinguishes one from another. It seems that container appearance is just one of those areas where a judge can find things to differentiate. Review the lid. Cleanliness is paramount. The lid should have no blemishes, no marks, no scrapes, no dents, any other problems. They have to be flawless and they have to be uniform. Review the glass. By the way, no plastic in most judgings. In New Jersey, the show rules say the jars must be queen line type or gambler classic honey jars. The contest you enter should spell out what is acceptable in the rules. Judges will look for cleanliness, not sticky, no defects in the glass, no nicks, scratches, smudges. It has to be crystal clear and everything counts. Information on the internet explained what to do to clean the glass and it was amazing. Sorry my big fat Greek wedding but no Windex here. You wouldn't want your honey to have that Windex smell. Handle the lids with very clean hands and that glass needs to be spotless. On the example that Bob spoke about, there was one bottle that had a bubble in it. It was a manufacturing defects. These are the things they are looking for. They'll even go as far as reviewing the lot numbers on the bottom for matching numbers. Incidentally, during the recording you hear a conversation about the screen printed serial numbers on a jar. They are there and most people are totally unaware that they are present. Some internets, internet sites say you should go as far as removing them with some hot soapy water or alcohol on a soft cloth. To find the number I'm speaking about, hold an empty glass up to the light and look in the bottom right corner about one inch down from the top or two inches up from the bottom. If you get it just right, you'll see a faint set of markings that are some sort of lot number or something. It's good to remember that submissions are three or four jars and all of them have to be impeccable. To label or not to label, that is the question. The shorter answer is it depends on the show you're entering. Some shows strictly forbid labels while others have labels as part of the scene. I've seen sites that indicate you provide the labels with the jars and after judging they'll provide a means to affix them. Honey appearance. Does the honey in the jar have bubbles in it? Bob examined each bottle for bubbles in the top of the honey. There should be no bubbles or foam present. If you find yourself with bubbles present, consider letting the jar sit for a few days before they are finished off and pop the bubbles with a toothpick if necessary. Some folks take a little spoon and just scrape the foam or bubbles off, making sure that it's flawless. The honey should be free from defects that affect appearance. Of course, there should be no chunks of wax, no propolis, or suspended particles of any kind. Bob took the jars and placed them in an inspection wooden box that he brought along. The box was about as tall as a toast and about half again as long. It had a light mounted in the end, and when a jar of honey was placed in there, one could see if there was any crystals floating in the honey. We went downstairs, Sharon and I, and grabbed the jar of honey before we left that day. The honey had been sitting there since last year, and it was clearly never prepped to be judged. The entire jar was crystallized when Bob opened it, and I joked that we brought that jar to show everyone what not to do when bringing in a specimen for judging. Everyone got a good chuckle out of that, but the truth be told, many people prefer their honey crystallized. Bob relayed that he sells more crystallized honey than clear honey when it comes to purchases made from those who come from overseas. A couple last-minute recommendations and notes. The last aspect of judging is taste. 
In the contest that Bob oversees, he doesn't often judge the honey for taste, but I'm guessing that it is a key component of many of the judging contests. As with just about any other criteria discussed here, I'm sure there's information in the rules or on the internet about how to get prepared for judging on taste. Prepare a number of jars and pick which one is the best. When bottling the honey, one suggestion is that you don't use the first pour or the bottom of the pot. Select the honey that's rolling out of the middle when you're processing. It's most likely not going to have that particulate matter in it. Everything that has been discussed in this segment has a focus on jarred honey. Contests often have categories for comb honey, chunkin' honey, creamed honey, and even beverages and wax products. Once you're in, maybe you're in to win it. This show has a New Jersey bias, as that's our home turf, so we'll provide a link to the NJBA annual honey rules. I'm guessing that there are rules posted somewhere on the internet for your state or location. That seems to be a reasonable primer on honey judging. Having never participated, perhaps this is the year for us to get into the game. We'll have to see if our bees are going to cooperate and give us some honey to work with. I suppose we'll learn a lot more once we actually do it, but we're game to give it a try, and we hope you are too. Time to step away for a touch. We'll be back with some summer plans for Varroa Control. You've heard me say before that Varroa mites are probably one of the bigger challenges we have as beekeepers, and I expect that we'll be covering Varroa mite control all summer long on this podcast. So you might have noticed that this recording is a little bit later than the promised schedule. Actually, there's a good reason for that. Since our last episode was posted, we went on our family vacation. I wanted to hold off until now, now that we're back, to let the general populace know that we were away from home, but the podcast was on my mind the whole time. The reason I share that is that I recorded the next segment on my cell phone while driving to Florida for vacation. It's a little bit goofy, but the context of the conversation captures the essence of our thoughts for planning on what to do for Varroa. Hey everybody, this is a, uh, a different way to do a segment. Hey, punch buggy blue. <laughs> we're driving down the road and uh, we're going to chat about Varroa mite for this uh, middle segment. We went to the Beekeepers Association meeting for uh, Northwest New Jersey Beekeepers Association. Uh, there was a conversation about Varroa and Sharon, uh, a lot of conversation had to do with uh, Bob Hughes was sitting up front and, and the one thing that struck me is he said he doesn't use powdered sugar and everybody seems to have indicated that that's fallen out of favor. Would you agree? <laughs> Come on now. Yes. Yeah. So actually seemed that only our club was doing powdered sugar and other people weren't. Other people never heard of it. I don't know. I've seen it on the internet. There was a guy, uh, I watched a video the other day of some guy who had this vacuum machine and he turned it in reverse and he was blowing sugar through. It was coming out of the top of the hive like like a, I don't know, it was just crazy, like snowing almost. I don't know how the bees would have liked all that air moving through, but I think people do it. I guess the question is, is everybody feels it's a lot of a nuisance and... Um, hard on the bees. Hard on the bees, right? Remember Karen was talking about how she thought it really aggravated the bees. Well, that's pretty obvious after you do it. You see them swarm around you with white, covered in white. Yeah. I don't know, when you look at uh, the principle of it, it, it seems sound. For us to do it, we would have to switch to our screen bottom boards. We don't have them on right now. True. So, they we're talking about different variants of uh, integrated pest management. And uh, whether you use Apistan, isn't Apistan one of the, I don't know, I look at you and we we know just about as much. Uh, we have used Apigard, right? We have that. We're going to do Apigard treatments this year. You did those last time. I've never done one, but I think the concept of it is you just set the thing down on the top of the hive and 
pull the cover off and close it up, right? What I used was what Stan's grandson helped me uh, when we had our first hive. He helped us with the treatment and fall procedure. Um, he had some sort of powder that he sprinkled along the side edges of each frame. Top and bottom boxes. Hmm. And then you put the package in, or that other, the other... No, epic? no, there was no other package. That was it. It was a powder. That's interesting. Chemical. I don't know what that is. We'll have to find just out. just sort of sprinkled it on top of the, each frame along the edges. And then he put a protein patty in there, and we closed it up, and they made it all winter. They were fine. Swift. Swift, Swift truck. We're counting trucks when we see a Swift or a JB Hunt, or a... Uh, what do you guys have? Penske, right? Every time you see a Penske. And U-Haul. I get it. There's a south of the border sign, 80 miles to the south of the border. So um, one of the other ways we do this is put drone brood frames in. I put those in this week. They were... The expectation is that the bees would build out drone brood comb. And then Varroa would start in our area July now through August we would take out those frames that we could either cut the brood away or we could freeze them and see if that'll work right so oh, there's a silver punch buggy <laughs> this is uh, I guess a standard family trip right got uh, the boys in the back one sacked out the other one's counting trucks counting money to get a quarter is it a quarter or 50 cents for everyone quarter <laughs> yeah so varroa mites what a pain this is I wish it, there was no such thing but I guess the key takeaway from the meeting that we got Sharon's driving so uh, I'm trying to watch what she's doing here but was that uh, several different methods is what people want and Bob Hughes talked about mixing up some sort of chemical concoction that he uses himself, but neither I or you don't know what that means. He had some custom formula that somebody helped him concoct. Of the actual formula that he makes? Army truck. They don't count for anything. Alright, so, anyway, Varroa. That's it, I don't know, is there anything more to be said about it, other than they suck? It pisses me off. This year we're going to get the, I'm going to have to order some um, boards, you know, the counterboard things. We'll have to switch to the... the sticky boards? Yeah. We've never really counted counted, you right? You just grease up a, a board or something, can't you? A piece of cardboard. Is it... Yeah, so I've seen on the internet you could take, they, people take Pam and yes. spray them on, but yes. I, I heard somebody say that Pam's not a good idea. It's not good for the bees. True. Not that the bees are getting on it, but you have to put Pam in, and put a wire or something over it so the bees don't Crisco walk through it, right? It. It's either Crisco or Vaseline is what I heard, because they don't get out. Caliente. Caliente. I Caliente, 76 miles to the south of the border. So, I don't know. We, I, I do want to do it the proper way this year. I want to be able to count the mites and and actually do that that way. Doesn't that make sense? Yes. Gonna be, I, I think, so, I think I was going to powder sugar them. We have powdered sugar in the garage. We, have, we did a little last year, but... I don't know if we didn't do it well enough. Like, everybody said you have to do it every... What if we powdered sugar one of the hives and did Apigard on the other hive? That's not a bad idea, actually. And we'll do mite counts and see how we make out. Yep. There's a Swift. Tomorrow. Cha-ching. Pesky. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll do our own little 13. experiment. Well, you know, that, that uh, is an interesting thing. What... What they said is you have to do it at least six weeks in a row. Once and a week. Once a week. Once every ten days. Miles. So, 
Maybe that's the ticket. Yeah. Well, they didn't. You know, it was different in the way that uh, the thing they said in the meeting is that you gotta you gotta do each box, right? So if we would have to buy more powder trigger. We don't have enough to do six weeks worth. You got some? Okay. But I mean, so we would do the top box, and then we would set the top box aside and do the bottom box. Make sure that you got all the bees covered. Switch the frame out. And then, how would you count, though? I guess we would have to do it, let them be treated, and then come back later and do the count, like a day later after they groom themselves. But isn't the point of that that you would know how many... Um, mites fell through the bottom board. just don't know if I like that method. The method of powdered sugar. Yeah, you know, it breaks one of the tenants too, which is keep opening up the hive every week, which I prefer not to do. If they're doing well, rather not be in there messing around with them. But the key thing is you have to manage the mites. Have to. There was so much uh, information this year provided about it, uh, Landy Simone, I was looking at, a, she's the master beekeeper from New Jersey, had a presentation about, I'll have to provide a link of that for the show, but um, there was a presentation about the effect of Varroa mite and what it does, and it had the incubation period for the Varroa mite. That's something I'm going to do this year. Two things I want to learn before we're done with this season is, what's the incubation of all the bees and the different types? I want to understand winter bees. I want to understand uh, summer bees and worker bees, nurse bees, the difference between those. What happens when a swarm is going? They they talk about, there was an interesting article in Bee Culture about how bees change and the type of bees that they build when they're getting ready to swarm makes a very strong colony, like a starter type colony. I thought that was really interesting. Maybe that, coupled with that dual queen method that we learned about at the beekeepers meeting, could be interesting to make splits and do that stuff and change the complexion of the bees to keep them strong. Is that if you keep a hive just going and going, do they stay strong? It seemed like ours kind of petered out there at the end of our ours second did, one. Ours did, but I, I know people that have just had them forever. One, they're one single hive. Remember the gentleman at the... We had the meeting at the winery? Yeah. The he doesn't do anything. There, he, right? He don't do anything. He never treats them. He takes his honey off. That's all he does. Ever. That's it. Once in a while, he'll feed them. There's a Penske and a Jamie Hut. <laughs> Canceled each other out. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a valid point, and... I, I really, what I want to do is understand the, the biology a little better. And uh, so Landy Simone's presentation had the biology of the mite, how long it takes them to um, gestate, I guess that's the right word, I don't know. Um, you know, why they why they prefer to go in a drone brood cell versus a worker bee, because they have longer, how they attach themselves to the bee, what they actually do to the bee as far as damage to the bee and all that so uh, I got to look a little bit at that the other day and I'm, I'm hoping to go back and study it further but I thought that I guess the best thing is to arm yourself with the information of it so well anything else Varroa Pensky and with that Pensky we'll call it a, a wrap on this uh, segment we'll be back with some more right after this
Coping with Bears When most people think about New Jersey, they think it's very populous, very crowded, and almost like a subsection of New York City, so to speak. Yeah, the old Saturday Night Live joke, what exit do you live on? Where we live, it's kind of the opposite. Most people don't understand that western, central New Jersey, and even parts of northern New Jersey are very open. Also can be said the same for southern New Jersey, but usually not on the shore side. The average property size in our area goes from half acre to an acre to three to five acres, that's about what we live on, to even 50 acres or 100 acre farms. That's the general makeup of our community that we live in. It's a mix of everything. Our area is described as rolling hills and a lot of farmland. New Jersey is the garden state, after all. In the county that we live in, we don't typically see bears, but it appears we have some new neighbors to consider. Having been a former 911 operator, I know that it's not uncommon for bears to migrate down to our county from more traditional habitats in northern New Jersey. People in our area used to call the police and they would lose their mind if they saw a bear around. The bears are typically migratory and they wander through our area and they typically go down as far south as Trenton, New Jersey, which is about 20 miles south of us. When they get close to the population centers, the New Jersey Division of Fish and Game will come trap the bears and take them back to where they came for. Often the bears are tagged and they know exactly where they came from and who they are. If the bears decided that they wanted to take up residence in our area, it's not out of the question as we do have habitat here that could sustain them and according to the local paper that is what has happened. It has been reported that a family of bears has taken up residence in the next town over. The bears have been circulating in the local area and now it's completely in the realm of possibility that the bears could find their way to our property and our beehives. Reading the reports in the local newspaper, the bears have settled nearby, say only about four to five miles from our house. So we enter into a chapter that we hadn't had to contemplate before. I'll step out of my stream of consciousness for a moment and say that I'm pro-environment, but in this case I don't see the value of introducing the bears into our local communities when it wasn't a norm in the past. I am left wondering why they, they being New Jersey Division of Fish and Game, do not follow the same M.O. and take the bears back north. I won't go on a rant as they have as much right to be here as we do. It's just that there's enough population here in our area that it seems there will be bear people encounters, and I'm imagining that most are not for that. Some say that we need to protect the white-tailed deer, too, in this part of the state, but if you've ever been to our neck of the woods, you know that the deer run rampant here, and the populations are really not in check. So there's something to be said about sound wildlife management practices. I guess I'll stop now as I don't want to come off as an elitist about this. I'm not as bothered as it sounds. It's just a nuisance and a change that we're going to have to consider. A follow-up to the local newspaper article indicates there's things one needs to do to accommodate our new neighbors. No more compost pile in the yard. Not a good idea to feed the birds. Not a good idea to leave outside cat food. We have outside cats, and that's what we do. You have to protect your trash receptacles, and oh yeah, they suggest you protect your beehives with electric fences. We split the, we split the beehives into two locations, so now we'll have to bring them together and provide a perimeter fence. We have some experience with an electrified fence around our garden that keeps the critters out, and an electric fence that we deployed to protect some chickens that we kept at one point. For the short term, we'll have to do something, and the suggestion is to use a strap to secure the hives together. The thinking is that if the hive is strapped together, the bears might knock it over, but perhaps it will prevent them from separating the hive bodies and getting them apart. I suppose it will depend on how hungry the bear is. I've spoken to a handful of people about this and it seems that there are several options. Set up a fence, get a power supply with a battery, and make sure that the power is on 
in a true Kevin kind of sense, my preference is low maintenance and maybe high tech. The catalyst is a conversation that I had with a fellow beekeeper. He let me know that he uses a car battery to power his fence. He has a spare and keeps it charging while the other one is in operation. He got a little behind schedule, which my lifestyle I presume I'm probable to do, and didn't swap the battery on time just once. The local bears are smart enough to test the fence, especially when they're hungry. He said that they will test the fence, and test the fence, and test the fence. They happened to do it once, when he didn't get the battery swapped out on a schedule, and they feasted on his hives. For that reason alone, I'm looking to make it solar so that the battery is always charged. More expense up front, with more peace of mind later. You know, it's funny, the thought enters in my head that this beekeeping thing certainly is not for profit. All the money sunk for the hardware, the bees, the new queens, and the equipment in exchange for the potential to manually harvest your own honey. It's not the win-win in that capacity. If there is a velvet lining for the hobby, it's that it is an enjoyable hobby that provides a sense of accomplishment, and I like the research and the learning that comes along with it, and not to forget the social aspect. I'm a social creature, if you haven't gathered yet. I guess each beekeeper finds their own reasons to justify the expenses if they're not turning a profit. Oh, and there is the honey, of course. So the questions start. Do we put the two hives in one location or fence in two areas? What type of fence do we put up? Is it two wires around a set of poles? Or do we need a fence that's more substantial? Uh, maybe something they use for livestock. We'll have to find what's going to work for us. In the grand scheme of things, it's not overly complicated, but complicated enough in having to find a solution. Does that make any sense? <laughs> it's simple. The solution needs to meet the objectives of keeping the bears out, right? If it keeps skunks and other unwanted vermin, except for us, of course, that's even better. Certainly the web is the place to start. Companies like Tractor Supply or Bee Forums or some other place will have advice, suggested approaches, and options for consideration. It's time to do some homework. One last thought. The bear report in the paper surfaced just before we went on vacation. I must admit, I fretted the whole time we were away from home, and I even asked Sharon to inquire with those that were looking after the house to check in to see whether the beehives had been molested. We were happy to get back and find things in order, so perhaps this is a non-issue. But in the back of my mind, I play through that scenario of coming home one day to find the hives completely wrecked. As a fellow beekeeper or one interested in bees, since you're listening to this, you could probably sympathize with how difficult that discovery would be. Time to figure out what to do. So there's one thing I'm clear about, and that's what to do right now. It's time to take a break. We'll be back with the term of the day and the answer to... How do you light a smoker and keep it lit? Come back and join us, won't you? Welcome back to the Beekeeper's Corner. This episode's term of the day is festooning. 
The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines festoon as a decorative chain or strip hanging between two points. Let me bridge the definition to our favorite topic, beekeeping. A week or two ago, I saw the bees hanging in strips below the comb when I was doing an inspection and thought it was interesting that they were hanging leg to leg in what looked like chains. I discovered several references to festooning and bees and it seems it is related to one of the more important aspects of beekeeping. Bees will often festoon to bridge an open space in the hive. The legs of a honeybee have a pad and hook and they could use their bodies in a scaffolding nature to build bridges to move around in the hive. The important festooning activity that I made reference to relates to building out comb in a beehive. Bees will festoon from the top bar of a hive and hang down essentially creating something akin to nature's plumb bob. With the use of gravity they hang in a straight up and down manner and chained together to provide a reference for building out comb. At least that's what one website suggests. I've been told that if you're going to put foundationless frames in a hive and leave it up to the bees to build out the comb, make sure your hive does not have a tilt to it. A lot of beekeepers will put some sort of spacer underneath one side and tilt the hive so that if any rain gets in it will run out. Well if you have that situation and the bees are festooning you're likely to get crooked comb. Some are not convinced that festooning plays a role in the creation of comb, but rather is a trait that is coincidental. Bees festoon apparently for other reasons too. When you see a hive of bees hanging in a swarm from a tree or a branch or something, they are festooned together from a tree limb or some other object by the pad and hooks that we talked about. Regardless of the reason that bees do it, it's a fascinating activity to witness and I challenge you to look in your beehives and check to see if you can see them festooning. Let's move on to how to light a smoker. I'm not ashamed to admit that I had a problem. Hello everyone, my name is Kevin and I can't keep a smoker lit. Yeah, it's the old joke from AA, but it's a fundamental problem that probably every beekeeper has had to overcome. Sure, I could put fuel in a smoker, and yes, it would light for a while and smoke for a while, but it just wouldn't stay long enough, and it sure isn't pleasant when it runs out of smoke at an inopportune time. To solve a smoker dilemma takes technique. The short of it is you want to get a reasonable fire going in the bottom of the smoker, and then cover it up enough to smother it some, but don't smother it so much that it goes out. This is where the bellows becomes your best friend. Here's the technique that I found on YouTube that has worked for me. Gather up a single sheet of newspaper and crumple it into a ball about the size of a baseball or softball. Put it in the bottom of the smoker and cover it loosely with your fuel of choice. In our case we often use pine needles. Light the paper until it flames and catches some of the fuel that you're using. As soon as the fuel starts burning, add more fuel and tamp it down. This is where the bellows comes in. As you add more fuel and tamp, it could snuff out the fire. Using the bellows, introduce enough air into the smoker to keep the fuel lit in the bottom of the pile. Keep tucking in the fuel, in our case again, pine needles, until you have what you need. In our case, we usually fill the smoker to about half to two-thirds and will last more than long enough to work on our hives. One vivid memory that I had attending two previous NJBA spring meetings was witnessing the beekeepers there lighting a smoker at the start of the day, and that smoker stayed lit for hours on end. It was a mystical occurrence at the time, and now you know the secret formula to keeping a smoker lit. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. I, I have to say that I think I recorded some of the first parts of this episode back in late June and uh, some obviously while on vacation in mid-July and here I am cleaning things up in early August. Uh, not the plan but that's the way it happens when vacation and soccer and other things take over. I promise not to do that so let's see what we could do here in August to get back on track. August should be a busy month for beekeeping and we get to bringing those bi-weekly episodes. Messages can reach us via email. The address is kevin at bkcorner.org. 
website is www.bkcorner.org. Before we head out, our theme music is from my favorite, Huey Lewis in the News. Huey and the boys are making a West Coast swing as we speak. And the news is from HLN.org, the definitive website for Huey Lewis, that the guys are in the studio working on a new album. Totally psyched about that. A quick summary of the podcast podcast safe titles used in this episode. In this episode, we heard the song Apart from the album Things You'd Never Thought I'd Say. The artist is known as Freddie. It was Mauricio Cabrero's Disco Vejo from the CD Mex Jazz Sandwich Somewhere in the Middle. Totally killed that pronunciation, probably. We'll take you out with a tune that has a mojo harmonica thing going, Buds and the Power of False Love. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time on BK Corner. Got the power to heal you forever Like a city of sin You never come out quite like you come in Some girl's got a glance Fry your eye forever Like lightning is dragging on a clear blue sky You never know what it's False love, I can tell you Just what you need to hear Don't matter which word is true And it's whispered just soft in your ear drop you right here to the present make time stand on its side whenever that girl arrives but since she's gone I realize I worship the ground under her thigh not that it does me any good she's solid gone for good she's solid gone I can't help but to listen To them words that come flowing down Inside that lightning sound and Give it to me one more time For good, good measure With a solid love So solid gone I can't help but miss You never come out like you come in The false lover can tell you What you need to hear The false love's